All right, so here we are in um, Romans chapter 7, and this is lesson 44. And uh, finally, the struggle comes down to, yeah, it's me. Yeah, it's, I hate it when it's my fault, but it's, it's my fault. So I can't blame it on anything else, tried to blame my opponents, tried to blame the law, but it's really, it's just me. So, and by the way, that, that me is not Jeff Jackson. <laughs> Only for me. So the me is you. Okay. There is an old, old phrase, I think some, some general made some statement. He said that we have met the enemy, the enemy and it is us. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep, and it's, it's us. I should have known. A Marine would know. Okay, so let's uh, go to Romans chapter 7 as we continue our study in the grace and peace to you, the book of Romans. Uh, we should finish chapter 7 tonight, and then um, next week we'll be ready for chapter 8, which finally brings us to uh, more notes of victory. Yay. And so... Uh, this has kind of been this slogging through some difficult things, but uh, as I was studying this last week, I, I put together some things here that we'll look at tonight, why, in some ways, why this is so important to Paul. And uh, so, Romans chapter 7, the struggle, it's me. The, the biggest problem that I have in walking out the sanctification, living out outwardly the righteousness that God has put within me, the biggest struggle I have is me. And it is that struggle against those things. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but if you read Romans chapter, or uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where Paul talks about the battle, and he's talking about athletes, and he talks about the different struggles that these athletes have. And finally, it comes down to, you know, I have beat myself black and blue. As the Weiss translation puts it, I beat myself black and blue to pursue this, this righteous way. And so Paul, uh, Paul had that struggle. He knew the struggle was real. He didn't want people to think it wasn't. But especially here with the church in Rome, it must have been a major issue for them, as we've been saying all along. So chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 14 tonight. And uh, last week we talked about the first part of this, and it being that uh, the law uh, is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy. It's righteous. It's good. And in this verse we're going to see tonight, it's spiritual. But the problem is me. So the law is fine. Verse 20, uh, Romans 7, verse 14, sorry, 714. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You have to read that kind of slow, or you just get tongue-tied. <laughs> Paul is it's very uh, circular in his whole argument there. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law, not the law, a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul, what is wrong with you? Yeah, this is, uh, this is real. Now we can tell from this passage, Paul is not talking about him before he got saved, because he makes the statement that uh, in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That has to be someone who's been born again. Someone who has the righteousness of God within. And so he knows that there's something within him. And so I find there is this law that what I want to do, I just don't do. And so this is Paul's struggle. And the we is him. We, through this, I, myself, me, however Paul refers to it, is your person. He's not referring to your inner man, and he's not just referring to your flesh. He's referring to you as the whole being. And as a whole person, you have the spirit within, but you've also got a body and its members, and you've got a soul that is in this room, mostly renewed. Yeah, right? Yeah, we're, we're really going on that. All right, we're mostly renewed in our soul. Uh, we like to say that. But um, our, our soul that is partially renewed, partially not, and so it keeps going back and forth in this struggle because the temptation to sin is out there. And it is in contact with my members, my body, my eyes, my mouth, my ears, everything, my thoughts, my will, my emotions. And all those things are affected by the world around me, which is still under the control of the enemy. Right? So he is the prince of the power of the air. He is here in the earth working his wickedness. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, don't be... Don't be ignorant concerning his devices. He's got a lot of strategies, but we got a better strategy, right? 
that if we yield to the Spirit of God, if we use the gifts he's given us, we can triumph even in this life. Ultimately, though, it is this, Paul calls it, Colossians, or Philippians chapter 3, 21, he calls it this vile body. This vile body will put on his glorious body. All right, so that day is coming, but it's not yet. It hasn't happened. And so we face this struggle. And the, the flesh, even though it has no power, still tempts me through these things on the outside. Now, James kind of says this another way around. So let's look here at the passage there about the middle of your first page. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one, uh, that's you, by the way, no one of you, no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So your problem isn't God. Well, you know, God made me do this, and he brought this in, and so you know, God put the tree in the garden, and it's, he must have known we were going to do this, and, you know, so it's God's fault this woman that you gave me, right? She could just as easily say that man <laughs> that you put here, right? But whatever it is, it's not God. The temptation is where? Out there. It's out there. So James says, don't, don't say when you're tempted that I don't have any control over this. That's basically what he's saying. Because it's not coming from God. God tempts no one with evil. He can't himself be tempted. But verse 14 says, but each person is tempted. How many people? How many people? Each person. Who does that include? Yeah, you. Okay, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Well, my desires are all of God. Okay, go ahead. Just go ahead and say that. And I'll accuse you of arrogance, and therefore you're in sin. So, <laughs> by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, it is, I think in the King James it says lust, yeah. right? And so lust, my own desires, it is these things that are there. It's like, I know I shouldn't do this. But I want it. Jen and I came in tonight, walked by the candy bowl that's on Barbie's desk. And there are these special dark chocolates with crispy treats in the inside. And it's like, I didn't need one. I tried to give her two, but I knew she wouldn't take two. So once it was in my hand, what am I going to do with it? I didn't want the chocolate, but uh, you'll see that it's not up here. It's not in my pocket. It's, yeah, it's gone. All right, so desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So the lust is there. Now, this is not lusting after a woman or that type. That's not the kind of lust he's talking about. This is the, the, the enticing, and so I like that word entice. Um, this is the enticing to sin. It's not a sin till you engage it. Now, coveting 
is when you want to do it, but you haven't done it yet. But there can be the temptation before you start to covet. It's out there. But you can just as easily say, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm not, basically, I'm not going there. All right, so I'm not going to give in to that. So then it's not become sin yet. But once you start engaging it, even if it's coveting, thinking, plotting, lusting, desiring, letting those things build within you, you haven't done it, but you are already in sin because that's coveting. So the sin when it's conceived then gives birth to sin. The desire gives birth to sin. Sin when it's grown brings forth death. And so it is, it is what that kills you. The law? Does the law kill you? Does God kill you? No, what kills you? Sin. All right, so it is sin that kills us. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he bought us, or he brought us forth, gave birth to us, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So God has worked this thing around for our good in his own way. And so it's just don't, don't be deceived. God is doing this. Good things have come from him. So where is the good part of you? Where's the good part of you that God created, that God gave every good gift? It's your spirit being, right? It's that inner creation that you are. That came from God, and it's not going to change. It is what it is. It is God's image placed within you, and it wants you. Your inner man wants to control you. The spirit wants to control you. James is going to say that in chapter 6 or chapter 4, but we're not going there. All right, so look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, you, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Be ready to hear, but then what? Don't respond. You can hear the call of temptation. You can hear the desire. You can hear, just go ahead. Just go ahead and do it. Remember the old cartoons with the bad angel on one shoulder? The good angel on the other shoulder. Yeah. So there it is. But don't give in to this. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, you put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What? Rampant wickedness. That sounds like, man, the worst people in the world. I might sin, but I'm a good sinner. Does that even make sense? No. No. But it's not a lie. It's a it's a white lie. It's a, it's a it's not a lie. It's a half truth. Really, a half truth. Yeah. It's it's not a sin. It's a mistake. It's just, it's an error. It's not a sin. Please don't call it a sin. It's, it's who I am. I'm just a thief. I was born that way. I can't help myself. I'm going to steal. Just get over it. No. 
It doesn't work. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. In other words, there's something inside of you. We'll refer to this in just a little bit. Receive with meekness the word in the Greek language, the word that has been planted in you. So the word's already inside of you. God's desires, his purposes, his plans, it is written on your heart. His desire, the things that he wants, it's written in you. Receive with meekness. Receive it where? Into your head, right? The renewing of the mind, right? So receive with meekness the word which is able to save your soul. The word save doesn't mean it's going to go to hell. If it doesn't, no, it's make whole, make complete. Receive with meekness the word that's been planted in you because that will make you complete. All right, back to Paul. So this, this battle that Paul is describing here is his own, in a sense, personal testimony to inadequacy. Paul could have used a they, third-person pronouns. He could have used somebody else in all of this, but he doesn't. The thing that is significant is not just the fact that all of these things are present tense. They're not past tense. He's not talking about this is what it used to be. He's talking about this is what it is. All right, present tense. And the other thing even more significant is that Paul says, it's me. It's me. I am the one who is engaging in this. I am the one who is behind all of this. I am the one who is acting in all of these situations. And so here is Paul's testimony as he did his best to walk from a man born under the law, not just born under the law, dedicated to the law. And he's moving from that life to a life of righteousness. I believe that this is a testimony of the things that took place in Paul's early life as a believer. That is, a, he was growing in the things of God. Now, are they still issues for Paul? Certainly they are. Paul still has issues with these things, but he's more referring to these early years as he was beginning to walk out. Because at this time, he's still talking about using the law to try to bring his flesh into submission. And so that's what's really in this passage. We want to use the law. We keep going back to try to use the law. He's got a better answer in chapter 8. But we're not there. So Paul is talking here about his transition. Look at the bottom of your page there. From an arrogant, self-righteous, passionately murderous hater of anyone who would challenge Judaism. As he saw it. His personal interpretation of Judaism. Paul was passionate about putting people to death. So offended by anyone who would in any way challenge the Judaism that he knew he was absolutely perfect in. Wow. And that man becomes the apostle of grace? Oh, man, Whew, what a transition. So he came from that to what? To one who was willing to be humiliated? He would have never stood for that as a Pharisee. Rejected? Are you kidding me? I walk into town, everybody bows down to me. 
You, do, you don't reject me. I can walk into your house and tell you what's wrong. That was Paul. But he came to the place of being humiliated, rejected, tortured for the love of non-Jewish believers. Paul was willing to die, not just for Christ, yes, for Christ, but to get this message to non-Jewish believers. That is amazing. Now, we'd like to think that Paul fought all those battles kind of quickly. You know, he kind of got saved. Bang. You know, got some things from God. God downloaded everything to him, you know, like on a flash drive, you know, just downloaded it all, put it in him, and next thing you know, Paul is walking in the fullness of all of this. We'd like to think it that way, but it didn't happen that way. We read Paul's letters, we read Luke's testimony, of the things that happened in his life. Bottom of the page, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted and born anew, following his experience on the Damascus Road. So that happened in what chapter? Acts chapter 9. Okay, let's go to the next page. In Acts chapter 13, we're familiar with this part. Acts chapter 13, Paul is commissioned by the Holy Spirit and sent out from the church in Antioch. He and Barnabas were called out to the work that I have prepared for them. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit said. Set them out. Release them. Send them out to the work that I have prepared for them to do. Paul was told in Acts chapter 9 that God was going to send him to who? To who? The Gentiles. What? That's where I was going. I was going to the Gentiles to kill them. I got a different mission for you. Same people, different mission. I wonder if Paul ever met Stephen's family. It's one of those things I think about when I reflect on this. How did, how did that go? How would it go for you? Suppose you were Stephen's family, and here comes Paul. He's going to preach in your church. Man. Come on, honestly. How many of us have a hard time with that? Would that be a hard time? Yeah, I think we all can say that. So Acts, church, Acts chapter 3, okay, that's just four, four chapters. And one of those chapters has nothing to do with Paul at all or any of it. It's just James and the church there in Acts chapter 12. But when we read Paul's letters and the book of Acts, we begin to see some things differently. It wasn't just a couple years. Galatians chapter 1. I'm not going to go back and read all of these. You can read them. That's why I put the verses in there. In Acts, Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Paul summarizes his conversion and his early years, three years. And his first meeting with the leaders of the church, three years after his conversion. So he covers that he went out to the, to the desert for a period of time and he came back and he finally he went to Jerusalem and he met the leaders of the church. And so that's all summarized there. And at the end of that period of time, they gather him together and they talk to him about some things and they send him to Caesarea and then on to, it says, and then Paul went on to the region of Cilicia, which is where he came from. And so he went back to his hometown 
all right, Tarsus. And he was back in that region. And so he went back there. We have no testimony of anything that he did while he was there except grow in the things of God. All right, so he goes back there. Then we come to the next thing. We find Acts chapter 15, following Paul's first missionary journey. So he left in Acts chapter 13. It took him a little over a year for his first missionary journey, and he came back to Antioch. And then there was this trouble in Jerusalem that Gentile Christians could not be a part of the church unless they first of all became Jewish. So that was the big argument. Yes, we'll let Gentiles in, but they have to become Jewish first. They have to submit to Moses' law. Then we'll accept them in to the church. And that was the big contention. Now, it wasn't among the apostles. It was among the elders and the leaders, probably men who had been Pharisees or Sadducees who had now been saved. They were believers, but they could not let go of this hardline Jewish got to be Jewish no Gentiles so the church is having a big issue with that Paul goes down to Jerusalem he and Barnabas and they brought with them Titus and so he goes down there to settle this issue and Peter and then Paul no Paul first and then Peter gets up and they talk about the Gentiles how Peter says how God called me first. I was the first one to go and minister to the Gentiles. And Peter tells that story. And so after this period of time, James and the other leaders of the church, they decide, yes, Gentiles can be accepted. We do not command that they have to follow after the ways of Moses. And they just put a couple of little things on there. But the basic was you don't have to become Jewish. Gentiles are welcome into the church. Now, did they have to agree for that to be true? No. But God was getting ready to flood the church with Gentiles. All the cities that Paul went to his first missionary journey, just in the, in the year before this, all of them were in Gentile regions, and there were some Jewish believers that came. Paul went first to the synagogues, and they threw him out. And then he gathered all these other people and many Gentiles, and the churches were growing. And so all of this was important. And so we find that that took place in Acts chapter 13, 14, and in, then to chapter 15. And so when did this all take place? When did Paul's first missionary journey, he got saved in Acts chapter 9, and then when did this first missionary journey begin? Go to Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 9, Paul tells of his experience of going to Jerusalem, settling this issue, and then coming back to the church in Antioch. And then it says, Paul tells the experience, revealing that it was, get this, 14 years after his first meeting with the apostles, which was three years after his conversion. So 14 years plus three years is what? 17 years. So 
this conference in Jerusalem, where Paul went and talked to them about the Gentiles, was 17 years after Paul's conversion. He spent about a year and a little more in his first missionary journey, so we'll take that back to about 15 and a half to 16 years. That Paul was growing in God, growing in his understanding, growing in knowing who he was and what, what it was. He didn't have Paul's letters to read. That would have been convenient. He didn't have them. Didn't have any of the Gospels to read. God ministered all these things to Paul. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is talking about communion. And he says, How the Lord revealed to me that on the night in which he was to be betrayed, he took the bread and he took the cup. Paul says, the Lord revealed this to me. It's not the disciples told me about it. Yeah, the later, I'm sure, confirmed all these things. But it was the Lord who told Paul what Jesus did on that night. I can't think of a better person to tell you what happened in the upper room than Jesus himself. That's pretty cool, right? So Paul was growing in all of this. And over all these years, he was getting to the place where he was giving up this rigid, legalistic attitude that it is only through the law that I can be righteous. And so this, this information that he's going to cover here in chapter 7 has to describe some of that battle that was going on within Paul as he was growing in the understanding of what this was. If you'd been raised in the law, what do you think you would keep looking to to give you help? The law. The law. In fact, what was the Bible that Paul had? The law. <laughs> and the prophets, David, and we're teaching on our Sunday morning about how the gospel is in the prophets, but you have to look for it. Because there's a lot of law in there too. So Paul is getting all this information. The Lord is teaching him. The Spirit of God is teaching him. Somewhere in that period of time, Paul had an experience where it was like he died. And he went into the third heaven. And the Lord showed him things that he can't even talk about. And then sent him back. Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's like, that's pretty cool to be taught in heaven and then come back. But Paul says, but what I saw there, I can't even tell you about. It's not that he does, he's not allowed. The word unlawful is a better translated. It's impossible. I don't have words to tell you what I saw. Can you imagine? Paul, the most eloquent of all the teachers doesn't have the words to tell us what he saw. That is so incredible. Okay, God, we're ready to go right now. Let's go. What is heaven going to be like if Paul can't even describe it? Oh, God gives John some words, but how many of you know those words are still veiled in a lot of mysticism and a lot of, of 
a voice. Like, what, what does this mean? What exactly does this mean? All right, so I'm getting lost. Over Paul's writing, in the last sentence there about the middle of the page, Paul repeatedly returns to the subject of his letters, to this subject in his letters. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Galatians chapter 2 through chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 21. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. And so many more. All of those passages refer back to this same subject, to this same thing of learning and understanding who we are, what we've done, that it is not the law, it is not the law, it is not the law. But when we're fighting against our flesh, what's the first thing that comes to us? You better not do that. That's, that's bad. We, we revert back to the law especially they did in, in Paul's day. We refer back to a bunch of rules and regulations. Well, I can't do that. The Bible says it's in the Ten Commandments. You shall not. I better not do that. I better not do this. I better not. We refer back to the law. And, and the law then only points out how bad we are. It's not helping us at all. And that's the frustration Paul wants his people to feel as he comes down to this last half of chapter 7. He wants his people to read. He wants them to feel the frustration that is in him. He wants them to experience this same battle going on. And so he writes in this first person, which pulls you in, because if you're reading it, you have to read the word I. Don't you? I mean, if you're going to read it, you got to say I. <laughs> so immediately it's who? Me. And that's the problem. So, Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For I know that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. We read last week that the law is holy and righteous and good. Here we find it's also spiritual. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Wow. Wow. The law is spiritual. So what does that mean? How is the law spiritual? Because in the law is the promise of life. The law wasn't about how bad you are. The law was about how you can live to the glory of God. We read Deuteronomy chapter, uh, what the blessings chapter, where did it drop out? No, 28. Twenty-eight. Deuteronomy twenty-eight. Yeah, I knew I'd get it. I was just testing you. So we read Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight and it says these blessings, these blessings. Bless, bless here. Bless the blood. blood, blood. So it, the blessing comes first. Then he says, but if you don't, there's all of this. But the first is the blessing. Why? Because the law doesn't want you to feel the first thing is death. The law wanted to say the first thing is life. God said, Adam, here's two trees. Here's the tree of life. Eat it. And then there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't. But we tend toward the negative side. And so always we come back, we keep coming back to using the law to somehow frame our life, to somehow be our access. And if you're being tempted 
if you're being enticed to sin, that somehow these something from the outside is drawing you in, don't use the law to keep you from doing it. Use the solution, which is, can't tell you till next week. I know if you read, you know, you know, ahead of me, but pretend you don't know. Pretend like you haven't read. There's no chapter 8 yet, because Paul's still writing chapter 7. All right, so people who are hearing this, they can't read chapter 8. Neither can you. So you want to keep going back to the rules? I can't do this. The Bible says that's wrong. That's, this is wrong. The Ten Commandments. I violate this commandment. And I was like, I can't. I, I can't. I, I, I better not. I'll die. I'll die. I'll die. I'll die. I'll die. All those things because the law says you can't. But we're missing the point of the law because the law is not evil. The law is spiritual. Meaning that it has to do with the inner person. The real purpose of the law wasn't to condemn you. It was to tell you how you can live to the glory of God. That's, that was God's intention. Read this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. You could read the entire chapter. In fact, into the next chapter. But Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at this verse. And now, O Israel... Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, sorry. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? First commandment, second commandment, third commandment, fourth commandment. Is that what the Lord your God requires of you? Well, he said it. What is he really requiring? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you this day. But the first thing was to do what? To love and to serve. To honor, to fear. To give yourself over to this wondrous God who has delivered you. To give yourself over to loving him, serving him. Bringing sacrifices because you want to. The greatest of all the sacrifices was the peace offering. And it was a sacrifice that was not based on you violating anything. It was based on you just wanting to give God something. So you bring your peace offering. And you offer it there. And when you brought your peace offering, do you know what you had to do with it? Besides cutting it up and... Burning it on the auto cam, freaking everybody out, but it's just barbecue. Right? What were you supposed to do with it? Sit down in the courtyard and eat it with the priests. God commanded the peace offering. It was for you to eat in his presence. Why? Because it's about fellowship with him. It's about getting to know this God. And so you bring your peace offering, not because of your sin. Yeah, you got sin. If you have, get rid of it. But please come in, bring your peace offering, sit down in my presence and eat with me. Is that awesome? Some of you look at me like I've never read the book of Leviticus. Well, you're wrong. I'm right. But anyway. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 through 20, 22 goes on with the same thing. 
God loves you. Therefore, he says, circumcise your heart. Because he loves you, circumcise not your flesh, your heart. It's about cutting away the flesh, cutting away those things that mean nothing. I don't need that stuff. I've got God. Abraham looked at all of the stuff he'd got from the victory over Melchizedek. He turned around. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of camels full of stuff behind him. He turned and looked at that, and he says, I don't need that. Because Melchizedek had just said, the Lord who possesses heaven and earth is in covenant with you. And Abraham said, I don't need that. So I'm going to take a tenth of it and give it to God, the priest. And then the rest of it, divide it up among the men. I don't, I don't need a penny. I don't need a thing. Why? Because God was his source. I don't need stuff. So if I don't need stuff, then I don't have to fight people for it. I don't have to war over it. I don't have to lust after it. I don't have to kill to get it. I don't have to steal it from someone else. I don't have to want what somebody else has. I don't want to have to disobey my parents to, to get something that they don't want me to have. I don't have to do any of that stuff because God is my source. But we miss that part of the law. So the first thing we go to is the rules of the law, thou shalt not. And if thou dost, thou shalt die. All right, my best King James. But the law is spiritual. But the problem is, what? Second half of that verse says, but I am what? I am what? Of the flesh. I am. Well, I used to be. Bless God, I'm not of the flesh anymore. Oh, really? All right. The NIV says fleshly. The Greek word sarkinos. Better translated carnal. Well, that doesn't sound good. Let's just stay with flesh. At least that kind of hides it. If we say, but I am carnal, it's like, yeah. Better get out the law book. You're carnal. No. Why am, I, why am I of flesh? Why am I fleshly? Because the fallen human nature has inherited this from Adam. I inherited this with a tendency to give in to the flesh. That's what came to me from Adam. A tendency to give in to the flesh, the power to not have control of my life, as we studied in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Then he goes on to say, not only am I carnal, I am sold under sin. Sold under sin. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, the word sold is a tense which means that sin, uh, Robertson, Greek commentary, Robertson says, sin has foreclosed the mortgage and owns its slave. God owns it. But here, it is sold unto sin. But I belong to God. Yeah, but that flesh is still there. And you've been sold under sin. Who sold me? Who sold me to sin? Adam. 
Thank you, bud. We'll talk. We'll talk when we get to heaven. No. Soul under. The word under is mean to be delivered over under the power of. As much as we hate it, the flesh still pulls at us. I hate it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make some rules and I won't do it. One of the things you find in the Jewish law that they added to the law so that there were 613 commands, but by the time of Jesus, there were thousands of ordinances that they had added to the commands. So one of the illustrations I like to use is it says, you know, that you shall not kindle a fire on the Sabbath, so which means you cannot push an elevator button in Israel on the Sabbath because you can't kindle a fire. What does pushing an elevator button have to do with kindling a fire? If there was a spark, if for some reason you push that button and there's a short circuit and it causes a fire, you kindled a fire on the Sabbath. You're going to hell. So you can't take an elevator on the Sabbath. They have Sabbath elevators. Don't get on one. That will take you forever because it stops without your control for a certain amount of time on each floor and then it goes to the next and stops and waits and then it goes to the next. You'll never get where you want. So, but they made that for us Gentiles. <laughs> and so they, they added all kinds of things because I don't want to just not break the law. I want to keep you from breaking the law. So we add ordinances and other things to the law so that we're going to fence you from getting into the law instead of solving the problem because did all those laws keep anybody no because by the law shall no flesh be justified all right so christians need to uh realize they are many times when we're trying to fight this dominion of sin we're trying to fight this temptation of sin We've been, we've been delivered from its dominion. But the presence is still there. The voice of the flesh is still there. The pictures are there. The enticement is still there. And so we still have this. Paul says, do not become entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Don't, don't pull the law book out to try to keep yourself from breaking the law. There's a better solution. Because this won't work. And so Paul wants to bring this down. Now, verses 15 through 17 is probably all the further I'm going to get. I don't understand, Paul says. For I do not understand, bottom of your page two, I do not understand my actions. How many say, yep? How many there? I do not understand my actions. Why did I do that? And here he goes through his little, you know, word salad. Okay, just throwing that out. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I'm never going to do that. How many have ever said that? Before you did it, yeah. I do not do what I want. I, I want to do this, but, wow. I wanted to walk by that candy dish. But I knew 
that there was a dark chocolate crispy treat in there. Now you all want one, don't you? I want one. But I had to search for the second one. The first one was just kind of laying on top. But I thought, there's got to be one more. Because if there wasn't one more, Jan was not going to get one. So, I don't want this. I don't want it. And I'm digging through the jar, right? But if I do what I do not want, now this is a, this is a, t a little twist in this. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Wait a minute. What? Okay, that doesn't make sense. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Here's the point. I do what I do not want. Why do, not, do I not want to do that? Because the law has said it's not good. So the fact that I want to do it shows that the law is good. It told me it's not good, but I still want to do it. So I do what I do not want, and that shows me that the law is good because it said don't do it. Here's life. There's death. Don't go there. I'm there. I'm on the road, you know. And I have to agree that the law is good. The law said don't do this because there's not life in this. But I want to do it. And the fact that I want to shows me that the law is good. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it. It's not me but sin that dwells within me. It's not my fault. All right. Top of your page three. I, I don't understand what I'm doing. And many times we feel ourselves caught in this, and this is the great struggle. And surely, going back to Paul's biographical issues, certainly Paul wrestled with these things three years in the wilderness. about 14, 12, 13 years in Troas. Figuring out, studying the law, the prophets, finding Christ in all those things so that when he finally did come out and he was going to preach, he could go right to the law and preach Jesus. He could go to the prophets and preach Jesus. He could go to the Psalms and preach Jesus. He could go to Genesis, Deuteronomy, any book of the Old Testament, and he could find Jesus. What? All of that developed over those years of his ability to communicate these truths. But in doing that, he grew. He grew into these things. He grew into an understanding that it is not the law that can save him. All the law did was pointed out how bad he was. And the more he tried to use the law to keep from doing it, the worse he felt. Because it could not give him victory. All it could say is, you broke the law. You broke the law. You broke the law. You're going to break the law. You didn't yet, but you're going to. You want to. All these things that the law was saying to him. Because the law can't help him. And that's the frustration, listen, he wants us to feel. That's why this chapter is so intricate and so convoluted. How many think if Paul wanted to say all this stuff in one sentence, he probably could have? But he didn't. 
So he goes through all these different things. He describes all these past events, and every one of them shares some component of Paul's wrestling with this. The present tense that he uses in all of these verses portray his enslavement to these issues and the struggle that he is going through. For what I, the new man, want to do, I, the old man, this is the top of your page three, I, the old man, do not practice. But what I, the new one, hate, that I, the old man, do. Everybody see that? So that's, that's how you put that back into there. Using the law as a means of sanctification only makes you frustrated. Trying to give people the Ten Commandments I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe it is a good thing for young people to know them, for adults to know them. But trying to use the Ten Commandments to somehow regulate your life is useless because it didn't help before they got saved and it won't help you after you get saved. There's a better solution. Because all this does is leads Paul to a massive place of frustration. This old capacity, he does what he hates because these desires are still there. And all the law says is you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. This personal pronoun is his whole person. It's your whole person. Yes, I know in you is spiritual life, the, the very life of God, recreated in his image and likeness, in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24 says, this, this thing, in this new creation I am, is righteous and holy, and it doesn't want me to do those things. But instead of drawing from that for help, I look at the law which is on the outside, and I'm wanting the law to somehow change me when it couldn't change me before, and it can't change me now. I'm not saying throw the law away. Murder is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. All those things are still wrong because they're not what God wants. But just knowing they're wrong doesn't help you because every day, every day, every day, we do things that we know are wrong. All right, just moving on. We do. We do. But the believer has this problem. The flesh against the spirit. The war of Galatians chapter 5. But God's got a solution. Paul does what he doesn't want to do. It shows that the law is good. This knowledge has come to him. When I know that something is not right for me to do, then I am agreeing with the law that that's good. Knowing that it is wrong, though, doesn't keep me from doing it. Right? Well, if you do it, I'm going to spank you, or I'm going to do this to you, or whatever. You're going to get punished for this. Isn't that the way we're taught? That's the way we're taught. But what? Did it keep you from doing it? Nope, I just found a way to do it. So you didn't know. 
My brother and I had two different approaches to disobedience. His was just bold in the face. Mom and dad say don't do that. He'd just go out and do it. And that was just, that was Joe. That's, that was him. Just bold in the face. I'm going to do this. And if you don't like it, punish me. I, on the other hand, observing the fact that he didn't get away with that, devised my own schemes. I would do it. I would just do it in a way that they wouldn't know. Until they found out. Until they found out. <laughs> the night I drunkenly fell over my mother laying in the living room in the dark in a lounge chair um, that kind of sealed everything. <laughs> I, was, I was a junior in high school and yeah it wasn't it wasn't good. Yes it was I was drinking underage. Yes you're right I was. Smoking and thinking they didn't know it. Because I would take one of those, remember those little sin sin things? Tasted like licorice. And put one of those. That'll take care of all this. It's on my hair, it's in my clothes, and I fall into my mom. That's like, okay. It's, it's, it's a wonder I'm alive right now. It really is. But look at this, and I've got to close with this. i got to close. It says in... Um, I'm right there. That this knowledge is in us. Why? Because an Adam walked away from the tree of life. He went to the tree of evil. Is that right? The knowledge of evil. Is that what he did? He ate of the tree of knowledge of evil. Now what else was in that? Good. You see, that's God's grace. That even though Adam walked away from what God wanted, there was in that tree a knowledge of good. There's knowledge of good. Not the ability to do it, but the knowledge of it. And so there was, there was God's grace offered there in the original fall of man. That there was something in there. And so God has placed within the heart of every person knowledge of good and evil. There is something in people. They know they're wrong. They know that what they're doing is wrong. And they know what to do is right. But they do it anyway. And that is the problem that we run into. So, this is the reflection of this fallen man. I'm just like Adam. I want to do what's right, but what's wrong looks so good. And it seems to offer something more. What, is, what did Satan say? If you go to this tree of knowledge, of good evil, you'll be like God. We'll go back and read the original creation. God created man in what? His own image. He already was like God. He didn't need that. So thinking he was getting something, he actually lost everything he had. But we can't use the law to help us. So we'll pick this up 
part two of me next week.